Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. Ahoy! My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books, an excellent publication. Joining me today is my co-host, Boris Draluk, who is the executive editor at the LA Review of Books. That's impressive. Hello, Boris. Good to be aboard. Glad to have you. Today, we are going to be talking with, this is very exciting to me, an author named Despina Stratagakis, who wrote a book called Hitler at Home, which I cannot recommend enough. Despina is a professor at the University of Buffalo, and she is currently at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. She is the author of Hitler at Home and also A Woman's Berlin Building the Modern City. We will be talking to her via telephone. Despina Stratagakos, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. I love this book, and I just want you to know that I have it on my coffee table, the only book on my coffee table, always with a vase of flowers, and uh, I don't know, it just gives me so much pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much. I show it to everyone, and people don't know what to say. But there's so many surprises in this book. One of the reasons I love this book is because, just starting with the most obvious thing, you look at the work of Speer and you say, oh, of course, this is the face that he wants to present to the world. But you look at the interior decorating done by Gertie Troost. Gertie Troost. The interiors that she designed for him in Munich, in Berlin, and especially at the Berghof is mountain retreat, one can look at them and say, well, I I kind of like them. (laughs) They're almost (laughs) contemporary. And it's very surprising. And as you point out, it offered visual proof to many, many people, not just journalists, but statesmen, that he was, in fact, a cultured, civilized person. Absolutely. And the interiors are much more aligned with sort of the modern movement that was happening in Europe and North America, not like the international style in the Bauhaus, Mm -hmm. but with where that movement was developing in the 1930s. And it is jarring to look at these interiors and think, oh, not bad. And it's not just us that are having that response now, but back then too, the Germans looked at those interiors and they thought, oh, these are quite polished and also modest. Uh, They're quite refined. And so because we do associate our domestic interiors with who we are somehow as individuals, people associated those refined, modest, quite likable interiors with their occupant. And that was precisely the point. But Gerdi Toast is a very interesting designer, and she is representative of another sort of stream in national socialism. And because of the emphasis on Albert Speer, for good reasons, of course, but we've kind of lost track of the fact that modern design didn't disappear in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. Even the regime used it in certain places and at certain times. But Germans themselves didn't suddenly decide, oh, I don't like these tubular metal chairs that were so popular in the early 30s. There was a shift, definitely during the regime, towards more traditional styles, but these other modern styles continued on. So she gives us this window not only onto the way that people saw Hitler, but 
onto also the complexity of design in this period and the fact that it wasn't as straightforward as we might think or even as laughable as mm-hmm. we'd like to think. And that's, I think, where people get uncomfortable with the polish of these designs. Well, it's like she taught him that sometimes the simplest dress in the room is the most expensive dress in the room. She taught him that concept, and he understood it. He did. And even Albert Speer, in his memoirs, writes about this, that she had a positive effect on Hitler's taste, and that she did influence him. And she herself, after the war, really insisted that she had played an important role in the look of the regime and that she felt she had had this moderating influence on him. But he did get it. And we see that not just because he agreed with most of her design decisions, although they did have some important conflicts, but also because he chose to be photographed in those settings. He chose to have diplomats come to those settings. So he also understood the way that others were perceiving him in these kind of seemingly modest, refined interiors. Although they came off as being modest, they were in fact very expensive because as you said, sometimes the most expensive dress is the one that's appears to be the most simple. And that's true for furniture, too. So these were, in fact, very, very expensive interiors, but they didn't drip with this veneer of wealth. And that was very important to Hitler because he had presented himself as a man of the people, a modest man, someone who wasn't drawn to the material side of life. And when he rose to power, it was very important that he not alienate the people around that issue and that he continue to present himself as this man who was modest in his taste when, in fact, of course, we now know that he'd become fabulously wealthy mm-hmm. and those houses were incredibly expensive to build. Boris and I were looking at the cover photo, which is just a corner of the room that Ava Braun lived in. Was it in Munich? That, that is was- actually in the Berghof. That is one of her rooms in the Berghof. Right. We're uh, looking at the photograph yeah. and we were saying, you know, that could be our bedroom. Absolutely. I mean, uh, except say for, for the, the portrait, the of, portrait Hitler. of Hitler. It's so simple. Another thing I really enjoyed was because I worked for a fashion magazine once, the fashion magazine coverage of Hitler's homes, particularly the Berghof, as late as 1939, very admiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were American magazines, House and Garden, Vogue the New York Times Magazine. There was one really interesting story. I think it was the one in the New York Times Magazine where the byline, you couldn't trace this woman. You could never find her. Simpson, yes. Hedwig Maurer Simpson. Yeah, if anyone out there knows who she is. (laughs) She wrote that article, and I think I have traced one other article by her also in 1939. I kind of wonder who she is, if she existed. Is she actually Goebbels? Uh, It's just so so over the top. Well, first of all, you wonder who is writing this. She's supposedly based in Munich and writing this in 1939, this over-the-top puff piece Mm -hmm. about the Berghof and life there. But then you also, of course, have to wonder why the New York Times would publish this at that critical moment just days before the Germans invaded Poland. So there's like different questions that that article raises. But yeah, I haven't been able to track down who she was. It's very suspicious. Yes. 
But the collocation, as you say, of uh, of that article with the stories on the front page, the cartoons mm-hmm. that have been commissioned, it's really striking how much confusion these newspapers represented. They represented a great deal of confusion, I think, among their readers. It wasn't just the editors who were baffled, but the readers themselves. People couldn't make up their minds. In the book, I kind of imagined looking at that issue of the New York Times. I think it was August 20th, 1939. And you look at the front page, which is just covered with stories about the tensions that are growing in Europe, and it's really alarming. And then you keep going, flipping through, and then you get to the New York Times, and there's this puff piece mm-hmm. about how great life is at the Berghof, and talking about Hitler's sweet tooth and his love of gooseberry pie and how kind he is. And you just think about the dissonance, like, what are you supposed to do with that? Exactly. You know, that dissonance between what the front page is telling you and what the magazine inside the newspaper is telling you. One of the things I think about is just how it's not just editors who are choosing to publish these, but they're also choosing them because they think that their readers want to read them. And I do think that kind of a story, I mean, it would have been confusing, but also maybe comforting. Maybe it gave people some sense that what was happening on the front page would be contained because Simpson gives us this other, much more likable, comforting figure of the private Hitler who doesn't seem like a warmonger. He Mm -hmm. seems like, I think she mentions that he takes care of orphans and he's good to his dogs, but he's (laughs) kind to children, neighboring children. And that somehow, maybe it was a straw that people could clutch so they wouldn't have to really confront what the front page was telling them. And of course, 10 days later, that no longer holds. What's also fascinating is that we're dealing with that issue now in American politics. What is the role of the journalist? Is it to report? Is it to simply parrot the information given to them by some disreputable source? Or is it to fact check on the spot? Hitler and his PR team crafted techniques that today are just so commonplace that we just think they always existed. And one of the things that I hope people will get from the book is to see the process actually happening, to see how this diversion to the private life of politicians developed in the 1930s, and that was part of this emerging celebrity culture at that time. And that has now become so normal that I don't think we're critical enough, especially of a lot of the kind of industries around the private lives of celebrities like Us Weekly or even design magazines that lure us into this feeling that we are getting to know a celebrity like through their domestic interiors or that somehow, and this was really important with Hitler's PR people, they were able to convince people that there was this other Hitler, the private man, and that the private man was the true man, and that 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 private man, they made him likable. And people, when faced with choosing between the public figure, this ranting, very frightening warmonger, they had another choice. They could choose instead to believe that that wasn't his true self and that this other private Hitler would somehow control the madman in the chancellery. And the so-called fluff media played a really important role in Mm -hmm. creating this alternative kind of reality. And it was dangerous. We're well advanced in terms of that just becoming common for us in our political and social lives. I want to sort of take us back to a moment when that was starting and look at 
what it meant and how dangerous it was so that we just developed maybe a little bit more of a critical space. Well, as much as I love your book, I also feel like good luck in stopping that trend. But I suppose it's possible to be more thoughtful about it. But I mean, having worked at a fashion magazine, I can't help but hearing the editor of Vogue in 1938 saying, oh my God, I got these pictures in of the Berghoff and they're fabulous. I just know the fashion world and they were giddy with excitement about these photographs, I'm sure. And they had this glossy two-page spread comparing Hitler's domestic interiors to those of Mussolini and Eden. That's another instance of where they normalize these two dictators with one sort of, you know, elected member of parliament by just kind of glossing over those differences and looking at their homes as representative of not so much the interior lives of these great men, interestingly, but looking at their homes as representative of the cultures of their countries without any sort of critical commentary on how maybe there were some important differences there. But Hitler's home was just described as gemütlich mm-hmm. and Eden's was described as kind of reserved and British and Mussolini as sort of flamboyant. And again, it's like this diverting our attention from where we should really be looking in terms of important political differences. All of a sudden you find yourself thinking about pillows and things like that. And it also legitimizes these men as expressions of their national spirit. It's this mm-hmm, primitive exactly, thinking, yeah. yeah, that this is the yeah, leader they, they deserve. Right. I remember there was a line about the swastikas on Hitler's pillows, and it was just this throwaway line with no critical commentary. It was in the context of Hitler's home representing a German spirit, which was gemütlich and jumbled sort of warmth. But that line, it tells you that Vogue was just taking out of the its picture of who was German, the German Jews. They are simply not thought of in this presentation of Hitler's home as typical of the German nation. They're not German, apparently. Yeah. And of course, that was exactly what Hitler argued. One of the more devastating passages is, I think, Lee Miller's account of mm. the house after its destruction and also the Munich flat, which was preserved. Truly extraordinary. She really expresses the uncanny aspect of that experience. Yeah, and what bothers her especially is how banal it is. So earlier that day, she had been in Dachau. She was traveling with American soldiers, and they liberate the camp. She photographs the horrors that are found there. And then that night, she moves on to with these American soldiers, and they find Hitler's apartment in Munich, and they settle in for the next few days. And it's that literally sort of what's at the end of the road from Dachau that she just cannot fathom is that when she gets to the apartment, she has been, for the last few years, she's been thinking about Hitler as this monster, she tells Vogue's readers. And she gets to this apartment, and it's all just so banal and not great, not really bad. She pokes around in the cupboards, looks at the linens, looks in the bathroom cabinet, and it's I think she uses the term almost human. She can't yes. quite go to that war. Again, she's just been at Dachau. That is what she finds terrifying. Exactly. If she had found this monster's lair at the end of that 
that she could deal with. What is almost human, that is what she can't deal with. And there's this very famous photograph in the book that was published in Vogue where she takes a bath in Hitler's bathtub and she leaves her boots that are covered with, encrusted with the mud from Dachau on this white bath mat right in front of the tub, you know, as if she's somehow trying to cleanse herself yes. of what she's seen that day. It's an incredibly powerful really um, photograph, but also essay by her that I think really resonates. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation with Tom Lutz and Nicholson Baker. We are back with Nicholson Baker. We're calling him Mr. Baker because he's a substitute teacher. And his new book is called Substitute, which we highly recommend. But Mr. Baker has come back to give us a book recommendation. What would you like to recommend? Today, I would like to recommend Speak Memory by Vladimir Nabokov, who was a emigre and came here. And he first, he tried to write, his English sort of gradually got better and better, although his mind was always brilliant. At some place along the way in the 50s, he started to write recollections of his childhood in Russia. And this book is a miracle accordion book. And I don't believe you have to read books from the beginning to end, but this book I have never read from beginning to end. It was a set of pieces for The New Yorker, and it still a little bit feels like that. But it's a book that I can open on any given day, and I will start reading, and then I'll realize that, amazingly, I had never read that paragraph before. And I'm convinced that what's happening is that I'm opening the book, and paragraphs are actually springing into life that didn't exist before. I mean, there's no other explanation for it because I have read this book and read this book. And it's not that I'm forgetting. And what I've done lately is I've printed out the PDFs of the original pieces in The New Yorker. And I pace around outside in the sunshine and read them aloud. And I'm getting an entirely different experience because they'll be pieces of the paragraph that sound different in my head because I'm reading them aloud than when I was reading with my eyes. So the accordion effect, which was starting to go away, because I really have read the book in pieces, is now being reawakened by the fact that I'm reading aloud in the sun. How interesting. And it's a great kind of substitute teacher recommendation, because you don't have to read the whole book. You can just, you can just dive in no, and dive out. Open it, start with, there's a nice, actually, speaking of education, there's a wonderful chapter about his tutors, all of their quirks and their... He thinks of his tutors as people. And, mm -hmm. and then he has the most beautiful story, one of the most beautiful stories he's ever written, a real work of fiction as opposed to this, which is a work of memory, is a story called Perfection. And it's about a very shy tutor who has a bad heart and takes his charge, a, a young boy, to the seaside for a vacation. And he's too poor to have a real bathing costume, so he goes to the beach in his full outfit. Anyway, yeah, terrific story. I visited Odessa a few years ago, and I felt like I had been there already because of reading Speak Memory. There you go. There you go. It, it somehow, even though it's not like a very, very thick description of Odessa, and yet you get a very distinct sense of place. 
I have a very bad memory for places, so I didn't even know it was at Odessa. That's the embarrassing <laughs> fact. <laughs> I just knew that I was in the middle of a of an evocation of a beachy scene that yeah. that just lived. Speak memory, one of the perhaps the greatest autobiography ever written by Nabokov. Thank you, Mr. Baker, for coming back. Thank you. Nicholson Baker is the author most recently of Substitute, going to school with a thousand kids. Thanks for coming back. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now back to our discussion with Despina Stratagakos, the author of Hitler at Home. As you say, it is terrible to recognize that he was a human being. It's much easier and more comfortable to say he was a monster. But as the great Ron Rosenbaum says in his book, Explaining Hitler, and who you quote in your book, we do have to recognize that he was a human being. And there's something about seeing some design that he approved that some part of you actually thinks is tasteful is so interesting because wherever we overlap with him as a human being is kind of important to note because mm-hmm. we can't pretend that he was not a human being. Yes. He loved dogs until <laughs> he poisoned Blondie, but other than that, he loved dogs. Well, what's disturbing, too, is that that was the message that Hitler's PR people tried to convey and did actually manage to convey so successfully in the 30s that Hitler was like us. That was really at the core of this effort to make him likable. But because before that, in the 20s, he was really sort of seen by most people as this very strange man. Mm-hmm. So this effort to make him likable, and it was a whole campaign, very successful, worked. And people did feel Hitler's kind of like us, and it made him likable. Of course, that's before the war. Then the war happens, and then after the war, the full extent of German atrocities is revealed. And then the last thing people want is to feel that commonality. Right, exactly. So in the decades afterwards, there's this real withdrawal from that earlier propaganda, but it gets rewritten so that before they're the site of normalizing him, after the war, they get turned around in the narrative, journalistic narrative, and they become the source of his strangeness again. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are lots of stories, biographies about him, about his his sexuality, and also the narrative about treasures that I talk about in the post-war period. The homes were looted. That gave rise to these stories about these great treasures that were hidden on the Obersalzburg. And of course, the Nazis were great criminals in terms of looting themselves. But again, that narrative is comfortable because you think, oh my gosh, you know, like they're Mm -hmm. not like us, as it turns out. I definitely don't want to come back to (laughs) humanizing earlier narrative that Hitler is like us. But I do think that we need to at least look at how the homes have been used over 80 years to kind of either pull us in or distance us yes. and yes. get some, you know, critical distance from the way that the homes get used. And I think, again, this is something that applies today that we are kind of disarm our, our critical faculties, I think, when we start looking at people's homes or magazines that are about celebrities' private lives, because we think that we're somehow getting to some 
real source about who this person is. And I would like us to be a little more critical about those messages. I'd like to just read one sentence from the the Vogue, which I just tickled me. This is from the U.S. Vogue magazine article, August 15th, 1936, featuring what they call Hitler's chalet. And the sentence is, on the side of a mountain, the chalet has a suburban neatness with a sun porch and canaries and its rooms like this one, a cozy podge of clocks, dwarfs, and swastika cushions. So yeah. that sentence is just extraordinary. It is. Again, swastikas become not the sign of this crazy regime and its ideology, its racial ideology. They become decorations on cushions. And the timing of that article is also very interesting because it happens right in the midst of the 1936 Olympics when the Nazi regime is very concerned about presenting itself as normal. In Berlin, they removed the anti-Semitic materials from the streets, from shop windows so that they could present themselves as this normal sort of government. And here is Vogue playing right into their hands. Mm -hmm. And Vogue has never commented on that 1936 article. Of course, later on at the end of the war, they do publish Lee Miller's account, which I think are very important. So I think there is this coming around to... Seeking redemption as well, possibly. Yeah. Another really interesting strain in the book is the battle between Gertie Troost's and Spear, that they were competitors and that, in fact, she kind of blamed Spear for everything. She was like, it was all Spear's fault. He was awful. And she really had Hitler's ear at first before Albert Spear did. And he had to act like he respected her for a long time until he wrote his memoir, And then they were kind of out-and-out enemies. And that's a fun thing to watch happen, Mm -hmm. them turning on each other. Yeah, she was not that much older than him, but she acted as a mentor early on. She was the better-known, the more powerful figure in the early 30s. And she did support him. He did know that he had to toe the line after her husband, Paul Trost, who had been Hitler's chosen architect, but then dies in 34. After he dies, Speer understands that he has to be careful with his widow, who's very protective of his legacy. But she does mentor him, and they are on, I would say, friendly terms until, of course, after the war, when he publishes his autobiography. And she feels that he's a complete traitor at that point. And she's also very angry because he foregrounds at that point. He's no longer playing second fiddle to Paul Trost. And she's also very angry about that. He makes up things about their relationship. For example, he says that he met with and was mentored by Paul Trost and uh, Gaudi Trost says they never met. But the main thing mm-hmm. is really that, in her view, he turns on Hitler. And she never did. She was faithful to the end. Mm-hmm. In fact, that gets her in trouble in her post-war trial, which was actually quite drawn out, lasted several years. She argues with the judges, despite her lawyer begging her to just, you know, Admit rein it, it in. Mm-hmm. But she won't. 
She has arguments about what Hitler did or didn't know and his merits as a person. She raises this issue of how can a man who loved his dogs, who loved children, who was so kind, how can he be a murderer? And she says, I just don't accept it. And instead, she does blame Albert Speer. That's her way, I think, of not having to come to terms with what Hitler did, but also what she did uh, in terms of supporting the regime. So by shifting the blame to Albert Speer, then she can somehow keep Hitler pure in her imagination and by association herself. May I ask on that topic, uh, there are two very powerful women in the regime that are supporting its propaganda wing. You have Trost and you have uh, Riefenstahl. Can you speak a little bit about that? You pose a provocative question. Can we think of these women as feminists in some sense? Because they did advance their own causes, if not the causes of other women, at least. And they had major careers. Actually, there were four women that Hitler talked about being very powerful in his regime or very influential in his regime. And that was uh, Winifred Wagner, Mm -hmm. Gerdi Trost, Leni Riefenstahl, and Gertrud Scholz. Think that these were his four female friends and sort of influential women. And I think there's more out there. The historians haven't really quite understood the role that some of these women had in the regime because they didn't have official positions in his government. But that doesn't mean that they weren't immensely influential. So I think we actually do need to dig deeper Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of leading figures in the regime and look for more of these kind of figures. But it does raise the question that I think is a very difficult one of how do we interpret their roles in the regime and can they be conceived of in any way as feminists? Because Gaudi Trost is fierce. She is fierce, and she holds her own in this regime. The leading sort of male figures around Hitler understand very clearly that she is not to be trifled with, and that when there are showdowns, they lose. So it just shifts your idea of women in the regime, and Gerdi Trost would say things to Hitler that he didn't want to hear. Um, But can that be considered in any way a form of resistance or feminism? And I conclude that it can't because in the end, she didn't recognize how the regime oppressed women. And later on in her trial, she certainly denied Hitler's role in the racial oppression. So I think in some instances, she did intervene to help people. And that's absolutely true. But I don't think she can be seen as a feminist. And she's certainly not a heroic figure. I think she also knew that she could only intervene so many times because they all had a Jewish doctor or a Jewish friend. (laughs) But I think he allowed her to intervene a little bit more than, say, Himmler, because she was a woman. And maybe he thought of her as more soft-hearted. It's also a great lesson in how much we blind ourselves when our self-interest is involved mm-hmm. to the people that we're dealing with, because we all struggle with that. And I'm talking to you, the press secretary for Trump. We all do that. And it's just fascinating to see it in such black and white terms. Also, as a historian and as a female historian, aren't you kind of glad that uh, nobody really wrote that much about truth before you? Because she's such a fascinating figure. It's such a great story. And yet it had remained mostly untold until you did your book. I actually resisted writing about her for about 10 years. 
I came across her when I was doing my dissertation research. My dissertation was about the first women in Germany to study and practice architecture. And so she was among, not the very first, but she didn't train as an architect. She learned through her father and then through her husband. But one of the things that intrigued me, and that's why I kind of stumbled across her, is that there have been almost nothing written about the history of women architects in Germany or elsewhere. Part of the problem is that architectural historians have not really looked at women practitioners or early women practitioners. But one of the things I noticed was that of the few histories that did exist, there was this very interesting gap between 1933 and 1945. Mm -hmm. So that's why I went digging and Mm -hmm. came across then her work, because I thought, you know, it can't be that neat and clean Mm -hmm. that women's participation in architecture and design just stopped in 1933 and then picks up again in 45. And sure enough, it's a much more complicated story. And there are actually many more women designers and architects who are active in the Third Reich that we know nothing about. Mm. So kind of stumbled across her files and her Nazi personnel files and realized that she had been an important designer during the Third Reich, but also that she had been very powerful beyond that. I mean, she acted as an intercessor. You know, people would approach her for help with Hitler, and that gave her a great deal of power. But I just didn't know what to make of her. I mean, she wasn't like anybody I had read about, and uh, I certainly had done a lot of feminist reading and, and reading about women's history up to that point. So I didn't actually have a framework to use to talk about her, but also I just didn't quite feel comfortable writing about her because she really does provoke very mixed kind of reactions and responses. So it's kind of funny that you ask that. I I don't know that I could say I would be glad because I really, for 10 years, tried not to write this book. And finally, it just wouldn't go away. Mm -hmm. So I gave in. And now, of course, I am very glad that I did tackle it. But it was a long journey to get to that point where I was comfortable with spending that much time with her and with Hitler, because when you write a book like this, which is based on archival research and that takes years to sift through material, it's in your life on a daily basis for it's a very struggle. long time. I didn't want Hitler or Gertie Toast in my life in that way. I had grown up with a parent, my mother, who had been very traumatized by the German occupation of Kefalonia when she was mm. a child. Did I really want to dredge it all up again? Again, I am very glad that I did it. It took me a long time to come to terms with it, but I think in that time it allowed me to get some space. And I do think it's very important that we look at who was influential in the Third Reich beyond kind of the figures that we've heard about again and again, because I think it shifts our understanding of power. Mm -hmm. And again, she didn't have an official position in the government, but there's no doubt that she was a very powerful woman. Well, at the risk of turning this into a therapy session, I think you did a very good thing (laughs) writing this book. And the history is still contested. I believe Thoros died in 2003, and her obituary... very late. Exactly, and her obituary found its way onto the far-right neo-Nazi websites. And so this history really does need to be told from a scholarly and a nuanced perspective, because otherwise it ends up in the hands of people who can warp that story in an unsavory way. 
as someone who reads everything I can find on Hitler, I did feel that this presented me with more shading in an area that I had had before. And I find that very valuable. So we thank you. I have one more question about the book. You pinpoint very interestingly the suicide of Gelly, Hitler's niece, in 1931 at the age of 23 in his Munich apartment as the event which necessitated a remaking of Hitler's home life so that it didn't seem connected with something weird, incestuous, freakish, sexual, and just perverse. And that seems right to me. I'm wondering, what do you think, just out of curiosity, the relationship between Hitler and Gelly was? Oh, wow. Well, um, (laughs) that is a question that has been uh, much studied, um, also by Ron Rosenbaum. What do I think their relationship was? (laughs) I guess I am more interested in what it was perceived to be. I don't know at this point if we can actually ever know what it was. And I think that we've lost a lot of historical material that might have been able to explain that. But what we do have access to now is what people thought about that relationship. And what interested me was that when she committed suicide, that it did create this crisis for Hitler and his the Nazi PR team because they realized that they had a void and that that void would be filled by other voices. Up until that point, they had really tried not to discuss Hitler's private life. So what happened is when that news broke, uh, of course, the press that opposed him filled it with a story about sexual perversity, with all kinds of innuendo, which may or may not be true. Before that, the Nazi leadership had already been dealing with these kind of unsavory rumors in the press about sexual deviancy and homosexuality among the leadership. So that was a turning point in the sense of realizing that they had this weak point and that rather than try to sort of divert attention away from Hitler's private life, they needed to actually create a story about it that they could control. Once Hitler seized power and controlled the media, then the stories about her were silenced. And they returned, however, at the end of the war, when, again, we see this pivot, looking at Hitler's domestic life as a source of his perversion, whereas the Nazi regime wanted to present it to us as a source of his morality and humanness. So I'm mostly interested in sort of how that relationship has kind of shifted over mm-hmm. time, and I I don't have any insights into what it actually was. Thought Fair enough. <laughs> I hope I'm not disappointing you. <laughs> not at all. I have my own theories. Yeah. Despina, we so enjoyed speaking with you. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Love your book. Love it. I will send you a picture of it on my coffee table with a vase Mm -hmm. of flowers. Mm -hmm. We look forward to your next book. And what is the new project, if you don't mind? Uh, It's, um, well, I swore I would never do another book on the Nazis. (laughs) But here I am. I'm I'm, uh, looking at what the Nazis built in Norway uh, uh-huh. during the occupation. Oh, interesting. And uh, in particular, some of you know, Hitler's um, uh, favorite projects in, in Norway. Um, so it's... Yes. Um, A natural yeah. outgrowth of this. 
in this book. It is, you know, and it's interesting because it's moving to, um, it's a challenge because it's moving to a very different scale. Yes. So where um, Hitler at Home was uh, about the domestic and, and that scale, but, you know, connecting it to the larger scale, now I'm looking at sort of all of Norway and uh, yes. not just architecture, but infrastructure. I mean, they built autobahns and airports and um, on and on. So um, Some of that facelifting. That, you know, yeah. that will be a challenge, yeah. Yeah, so they were there for five years. But uh, this book, Hitler at Home, is required reading for anyone who cares about the Third Reich and its propaganda. Thank you, Destina. Thank you, Destina. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. We have come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities, Boris Drela and Despina Stratagakos, the author of Hitler at Home. I'm Laurie Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. <laughs>